Jonah, chapter 3. This is part 4, but we're in chapter 3, um, and we're going through our series uh, called The Runaway Prophet, um, and we are going to be finishing up next week with this short series in Jonah. Super excited to kind of get through something and to, to study it cover to cover and, and really um, encourage you guys with the whole book of scripture. It's interesting to me and kind of fun that we are going to finish our first book beginning and ending online. Um, and then we'll get back together again. We'll finish our study series in Colossians and wrap that up as well. But this has been an interesting season of just kind of doing some focused topical messages. And then this short series in, jo- in Jonah, excuse me, the English language is hard when you're choking on your own spit. Um, but it's really cool to be able to finish something like this and, um, to do it online is kind of unique, but it's fun. And uh, here we are in Jonah 3. We'll finish next week. Jonah at the end of chapter 2 was vomited up on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. And it's an interesting thing. I don't think there's any other place in Scripture that I could begin a study very logically talking about vomit and human vomit, not somebody throwing up, but somebody being thrown up. It's a very unique story. And it's a very unique thing to be able to teach. And um, people in my in the room with me right now are very stoic. And I, I don't know if you're laughing, but I think it's comical um, that, that people get thrown up, and that's a way to start a, a, a you know a Bible study. The belly of the fish really became a lifeboat for Jonah. It was something that that actually he stayed in and was keeping him alive. If you view it in that way, this really is the most grotesque lifeboat ever conceived. Um, but it was the means that protected Jonah and kept him in a place where he finally at least vocally submitted to God and said, I give. And so God now has him spat back up on the seashores. And and I think that at this juncture, before we get into chapter three, we need to talk about something and just clarify an idea or an ideology, if you will, that you hear a lot in Christian culture It's spoken a lot in Christianese. It's been said, and I think most of us have heard it before that our God is a God of second chances. Um, or our God is a God of infinite chances. He just keeps giving us chances. And, and as you think about this, the interesting, almost preconceived idea of being given chances by God is that he's giving you a chance to do something. And the connotation there, the idea there is that we are going to accomplish something, right? And, and so the question comes to me as I was thinking about this, because the first thought that came to my mind as I was studying this is, God gives us, God gives Jonah a second chance. But as I thought about that, chances for what? What's the second chance that God gives Jonah? If it's a second chance, that means it's in the nature of the first chance. And the first chance was failure. And so as you think about this, is a chance for Jonah to achieve perfection? If it is a chance for Jonah to achieve perfection, what will that prove or what will that do for his relationship with God? And this thought process as it marinated in my mind kind of brought up other questions. Is this a chance for us to do the right thing under our own strength? Is this a chance for us to fix something that we broke before? All of these things kind of culminated together with a lot of me focus, a lot of me fixing something or me going and accomplishing something or me stepping out and doing something in order to correct a problem. All of that sounds like the chances of me going one-on-one up against like LeBron. You know, what are the chances of me going one-on-one against LeBron James? What are the chances of me winning? Zero. 
And, you know, like, zero as in, like, young Mike in his prime against LeBron in his 80s, still zero. Like, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to accomplish this. I'm never going to be on that, that same thing. And this is even farther fetched to think that we're going to achieve perfection if we just get another chance to do so. Jesus did not clean our slate by his sacrifice so that we could have another chance at perfection. He didn't give us a chance at perfection. He doesn't give us limitless chances to achieve perfection. Thinking that God gives us another chance at perfection points us in the direction of works-based religion. It puts us in this focus of actually thinking that we can earn something. A religion that says, if I accomplish this, I will then earn his favor. I will then be pleasing to God if I can fulfill this second chance or third or fourth or limitless chances. God's love for Jonah was not based on his compliance with God's commands. Let me say that again, because we we could go by that and miss this. God's love for Jonah was not based on his compliance with God's command. And when we see God speak to Jonah in chapter 3, verse 1, that his word came to Jonah a second time, it's not to give Jonah a second chance to do the right thing. He is giving Jonah an opportunity to serve him. He's giving him opportunity to serve him. But, But this is what's interesting that we often get caught up in. It's not an opportunity for Jonah to prove himself to God. He's not proving himself to God. There's nothing to prove. God in his grace offers Jonah the opportunity to serve him. Just so happens, it's the same job as he offered him before. God's love for the Ninevites, in the same respect as we think about this, God's love for the Ninevites was not based on their willingness or lack thereof to repent. He loves them because God is love. He loves us because God is love. 1 Corinthians 13, it's all about it. God is love. That's why he loves us. It's his nature. It's his character. He loves what he made. He's offering grace and mercy to the people of Nineveh. In the same way that he's offering grace and mercy to Jonah. In the same way that he's offering grace and mercy to us. He calls us on our sin. He calls us out of wickedness. All because he loves us. It was up to them to respond. It was up to the Ninevites to respond to this. And his offer of mercy and forgiveness is an offer for us that's a daily thing. His mercies are new every morning. That doesn't mean that God re-ups his love for us every morning. It never left. It never left. It's always been there. In Christ, we're offered grace and mercy, not a second chance, but rather righteousness that is given as a gift because we couldn't earn it. It's righteousness that's given to us as a gift. Thanks to the good news of Christ's imputed righteousness righteousness for us, believers shouldn't be enticed by proverbial sayings that promise fresh starts on life. You know, I got another chance. I get a fresh start on life. Don't get caught up in these sayings. We should proclaim with vigor that our Savior's righteousness is perfectly sufficient to earn our Father's smile. I'm going to say this again. Our Savior's righteousness is perfectly sufficient to earn our Father's smile. That righteousness of Christ that earns the smile and favor of God is on believers in Christ plus nothing. You aren't earning this. You're not getting a second chance. You're getting imputed righteousness. Righteousness given to you freely because of Christ. It's important for us to understand that because as we, as we look at Jonah... 
And as we think about our own life, we want to read the word of God. We want to pull out what it says, extract what he says and apply it to ourselves. As we look at this, this is not a fresh start for Jonah. It's a continuation of God's grace and mercy being made readily available to Jonah. It's God's continuation of his story, not a fresh start for his story. It's not a second chance. God never stopped loving Jonah. And I think a lot of times we get caught up in this. I just need God to give me another chance. I just need God to do this. Hold on a second. God never stopped loving you. He never stopped giving you grace and mercy. We respond because we love him back. Obedience is a loving response. It's not earning his favor. If obedience is earning his favor, that's workspace religion. But it's not earning his favor. You already have it. And so let's look at this kind of with a fresh a fresh perspective. As we look at the second call of Jonah, it's not a second chance. It's a continuation of the grace and mercy that God has offered to him. So Jonah chapter three, it's a short chapter. It's only 10 verses long and chapter four will be short as well. These studies will wrap up individually over the next couple of weeks. So let's do Jonah chapter three this morning together. This is what it says. Verse one, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. So God in his mercy delivers Jonah and gives him opportunity to serve him again. He gives him the opportunity to serve him. It's the same opportunity that God has given him prior. Yet what's interesting about our text is if you read it carefully, it reads differently. It sounds very similar, but it reads differently. If you look at this, you can probably turn one page or maybe you don't have to turn a page in your Bible. It depends on how big your font is. Um, Jonah chapter one, verse two, look at the first call. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. Now look at chapter three, verse two, same call, different wording. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Now here's what comes to mind for me, you guys. And I don't know about you, but this is how it works for me. The second call is more vague than the first. The second call is more vague. It's not as specific. Now, it's far more similar for me. I don't know if you hear specific things from the Lord. Um, I mean, I think some people do. It's, I don't think that people are more spiritual to hear, you know, um, less, like more vague things or that hear more detail from God when he speaks to them or calls them. There's times where God's talked to me very clearly, very, very um, detailed. I knew exactly what needed to be done. And then there's been times where the Lord just kind of gives me one step. And I know I need to take a hundred, but I see one step. This is often how the Lord calls me. This is often how the Lord leads me. And, and, and many of you that, that are part of Transform, you know I talk about this often because I like to share that journey with people so that they don't become disheartened when they don't see that far down the road. Most of my life, I don't see that far down the road. I'm just taking one step at a time. And so I don't often see any farther and the Lord shows me the step that needs to be taken, but will leave out the following steps. And I see why. If I had known where God was going to take me, I would have either attempted to get there faster than he planned and try and run those steps as quickly as possible, or I might have gone the other way. Interesting observation when we look at Jonah. God gave him a little more detail the first time Jonah took off. God in his grace, and now I'm not saying Jonah forgot the first call, but God in his grace when he calls him a second time doesn't give him as much detail. He says, go and preach the message I give you. Go and do what I tell you to do. There, the message I will give you. Now, if you look at the text, 
When he says, go until the message that I tell you, he may have told him right then. He may have waited. That shouldn't affect Jonah's movement. Whether God told him now or told him farther down the road, he still set him on the path. And that's very much the, the story of some of our lives. We know the direction we should be going, but because of lack of detail, some of us falter. And I want to encourage you, if God is not being detailed in your life right now, I want to remind you that's by design. It's by design that God is not being detailed for some of us right now. Accept it. Trust him in it. He knows what he's doing. Get walking down the road. I don't know where it's going. Neither do I. I don't know where my road's going. I just know the direction I should be walking in. And that's busy enough for me right now. A lot of times I look at myself and go, boy, Lord, you know, and he's always the one who's smart, but it's like, Lord, you really know what you're doing, don't you? I just like to reaffirm that for my own sake. God, you really do know what you're doing because if you show me more, I couldn't handle it. This is all I can do right now. All I can do is just what's in front of me, this one step. And so when you think about your life, I think it's important to remember that God is building trust along those pathways that he's taking us on. But I want to encourage you, that doesn't give us an excuse to not move when we don't see where it's going to end. Maybe the Lord has given you one step and you're not taking that one step. You're not going to see the next one until you take the first one. So for those who that applies to right now, take the first step, step forward. You'll see the next step when it's time. But right now, you know that that's the first one to take. God will often only reveal to us what we can handle at the time. And maturity is the road that we travel upon along the way to get to the next objective. Every footstep is a pathway of maturity. And a lot of times the reason why we don't see the end is because we're not mature enough to process it yet. Many people who are older than me and wiser have realized this. If God had shown what was coming, they might have ran the other way. But that path of maturity prepared them for getting to the destination that they're at now and will prepare them for the one they're going on to next. He completes what he begins in us. God takes us on a process, but just for the end of the road, don't be concerned. Philippians 1, 6, hold on to it. He began a good work in us. He will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. And just because you don't see the end now doesn't mean that God hasn't already taken care of it. He has. He's already taken care of it. He's going to finish the start, the beginning of, of your story. He'll write the ending as well. Verse 3, continuing on. So Jonah got up. Good job, buddy. Jonah got up. Instead of getting down, he got up. You know, it was no time for dancing. He got up, he got going. And so Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. As we noted from chapter 1, instead of going down this time, Jonah got up and obeyed the Lord's command. Remember, he was in that downward spiral all the way through, you know, chapter 1 till he lands in the belly of that fish, and chapter 2 cries out to God. Now, instead of getting down, he gets up. There's much debate about what's stated about Nineveh in, at this juncture of the story. As Jonah is now going to Nineveh and arrives at Nineveh, we get some descriptives and, and there's a lot of debate about it. We're not going to get into the debate. It's really not profitable for us. We know we can trust God's word. We're just seeking to better understand it. You know, a lot of people come to the scriptures and they're trying to tear it apart and prove that it's wrong. We know this is God's word. It's prophetically true. 
We're told over and over again and proven by God that this is his word. So we don't come to the text to tear it apart. We come to the text to better understand it and try and understand what it's saying and how it's describing things. So when you look at the statement that Nineveh was a three-day walk, Nineveh, by all indications from archaeology, was never this big to where it would take three days to walk from one end to the other. Um, but there are some possible meanings of what he's talking about as the writer writes down this story and says it's a three-day walk. That Nineveh was a great city. Um, uh, one thing you'll note um, in some of your Bibles, there'll be a note on Nineveh being a great city. I'll say great to God or it was a great city to God. Um, that's very possible, the literal translation. But when we're talking about the three-day walk, this could include the suburbs around Nineveh, whereby if you were to walk around the circumference, that would be like 60 miles. So if you include all the outlying cities around it, 60 miles around, sure, that, that'd take you about three days uh, or more. Um, but most likely, that's not what the author's going for here. Most likely, the three-day walk refers to the amount of time for Jonah to proclaim his message as he walks through the city. It's a three-day walk if you're stopping and proclaiming the word of God to people. And so there are some really plausible explanations for the three-day walk. We shouldn't assume Nineveh to be this massive metropolis. It, you know, when you look at ancient cities, they just didn't really work like that. Um, but there are some really understandable explanations for what the author's going for here. The message is what we're to focus on and what happens inside of the city. And here's the message Jonah was to preach. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. That's very simple. Very easy to understand. A lot less words than I'm using right now. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. This time of judgment, you know, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. You kind of make these associations with Old Testament scripture with like this 40-day you know, period of time, judgment time kind of comes to mind. Imagine the measures, as I was thinking about this, a message that's so simplistic in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Imagine the measures that a modern pastor would go through. If the Lord spoke this to him and said, in 40 days, Post Falls will be demolished, or Coeur d'Alene will be demolished, or Athol will be demolished. You're like, Athol? Okay. I'm just kidding. We, what we would say is, you know, we would probably... Jump to action with the tools that we have at our disposal. You know, we do an ad campaign. We put out some things on Facebook. We'd start hitting the internet up. We'd start going and, and you know, um, buying sound equipment so we could broadcast this message and, and, and have this big revival festival at the fairgrounds. You know, there's all these things that come to mind as a pastor. You're like, we got to get as many people in those seats, stick the butts to the seats and get this message out there because we got to talk to people. We got to tell them this place is going down, right? <laughs> there's a leak in your ship, Coeur d'Alene. You know, like we would, we would want to, we come up with so many puns and sayings and all of these different things. I just pictured a leak, like and sitting in a ship in my head. But if you think about this, I just want you guys to see what's happening in my mind. Imagine the amount of money and resources that would be expended to reach as many people as humanly possible. We would be trying to reach as many people as humanly possible. And yet God didn't need social media. God didn't need radio. God didn't need a television set. God didn't need a megaphone. He didn't even have Jonah dancing through playing his guitar. What did he do? He gave him a message. See, and these are the things that happened in my mind right away. Bert from, you know, Mary Poppins. I just, one man band thing. It's like, he didn't need any of that. 
People can't see my feet. Ellie's laughing because I move my feet a lot. I'm like doing a little dance moves, but you can't see my legs. They're there. And they're fabulous. But here's the thing. All he needed, focus up, all he needed was a willing prophet. That's all God needed. All he needed to get the message to the Ninevites effectively was one man willing to make one statement. God would do the rest. Spurgeon wrote this, you guys, on this passage. It's so good. Putting aside the judgments of reason and all the plans and schemes which flesh and blood so naturally do follow, he raises up one man. By a singular providence, he qualifies that one man for his mission. By singular providence, God qualifies one man for that mission. God doesn't need all of this. He needs a willing heart that will speak his truth faithfully. Do you feel inadequate to minister to people around you? Do you feel like you got to go through a lot of geriatrics to get their attention? Have you read a lot about Nineveh and the Assyrians? God is just looking for a person who is willing to go that he will then qualify to go. And I've said this a lot, and I'll, I'll keep saying it. it's one of my favorite things, that God doesn't call the qualified, but he qualifies the called. And so if God is calling you to go preach in this way, just like he did with Jonah, he's going to give him the message and put him in the place to do it. A lot of times we think about qualifications, and we're like, well, I need, I mean, if I'm going to do a church, I need to be able to play guitar. I mean, that's job one. I mean, the job two, I should actually be able to teach the Bible. No, so I put the other one before the other one just to mess with you. And number three, you know, I got to be a good prayer. I got to have really holy prayers, you know, thou, thee, thine, all that type of stuff. And once I get all that down, I'll really be able to bless people. God doesn't need all that. God needs someone who's willing to faithfully speak his word and he will use them. Are you willing to go? Never presume to tell God just what he needs to draw people to repentance. Be the man or woman who gets up when God says go. That's our job. Be the man or woman that gets up when God says go. And I'm going to say it again because this is the this is like one of these big points I want us to all walk away from in Jonah chapter 3. Be the man or woman that gets up when God says go. If I can impart one thing to you this morning, that's what I want you to remember. Is that when God says go, get up. And it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be the circumstances you want oftentimes. But if God says go, get up. Get up and go. Because God wants to do what we're about to see him do in Nineveh in our communities as well. He wants to do this in our cities. Notice verse 5. Jonah's message in verse 4. 40 days. This place is getting dropped. Right? Paraphrase. Verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. When word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up off his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth and sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh by order of the king and his nobles. No person or animal herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Verse 8, furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. 
after revealing the repentance of the Ninevites in verse 5, which is overwhelming. It's overwhelming to read that in scripture of a Gentile, pagan, evil people like the Assyrians to believe God. The Ninevites believed God. Don't for a second think that people around you will never listen, even if you say it plainly to them. Speak the truth of God. Let happen what may happen. But something happened here because Jonah was faithful to make a very simple statement. Now, he may have said other things. He may have taught other things. But here's the message. Here's the thrust of his message. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. That's what we're given in the text. And I believe absolutely that such a simplistic statement can bring people to their knees. So many theologians of old, scholars that we love to read, have these amazing stories about how they heard one statement in church and it just converted them. Because their heart was ready. Because the Lord was calling them. And it's so crazy to me how often that me, in my own life, I think I have to come up with a way to explain truth to people. We should be able to rightly divide the word of truth. But I feel like a lot of times I rely on that ability to try and slice in and find the right place to reach a human heart. I can't save people. That's a God job. I'm not in the business of saving people. I'm just a messenger. He's the one that saves them. He's the one that reaches their heart. I have to be faithful to speak the truth. And so here the Ninevites respond. They believe God. And we're shown why this becomes a citywide repentance. As often as the way in scripture, you'll read like a statement that kind of summarizes and then they give you details. Here's the details, verses 7 through 8. A royal decree of repentance was issued. The king himself got off his throne, took off his robes, put on sackcloth, and issues a decree. And he says, this isn't just going to affect human beings. This is going to affect our animals. You're like, call PETA. Right? No. Think about what this would have done. If you don't feed animals as well as the humans, right? What do, and for those of you who've been on a farm, when animals are ready to eat, what do they do? They make a ruckus. They make some noise, right? And if you don't give them water, what are they going to do? They're going to cry out. This is part of the lament. This is part of them crying out. This is part of them, you know, crying out out of anguish to God. This is going to be a part of the sound of the people, inspiring them to remember what they've done. It's part of this brokenness. It's part of them revealing that brokenness. The whole city would be crying out. They were to fast from food and water. They were to wear sackcloth, most likely made out of goat hair. Um, You can find different writings about this, but I think that sounds really uncomfortable, and I think that's the point. I think that wearing sackcloth would be very uncomfortable. And I think that's the point of it because you see it being done in times of mourning or brokenness. And it's something that people would do to be not comfortable, discomforted because of sin. It's a physical situation to place yourself in that reveals a spiritual reality. That's where fasting comes from. The whole thing about without food and water. That's why today we're not commanded to fast. I encourage you to fast. I encourage people, like, I can't go without a meal. I got a blood thing going on. I just, I can't. That's fine. Um, give your phone to someone in your house and tell them to hide it from you. <gasps> Gasp. I can feel your anguish already, but you need it. Here's the, here's the thing. Take something away that you rely on so that you focus on God. Physical discipline makes us aware of our spiritual condition. We don't, like, beat ourselves up. 
but we take things away. We deprive ourselves and make ourselves uncomfortable physically so that we can be more in tune spiritually. Fasting is important and it reveals brokenness. The king also sat in ashes, also part of mourning and repentance in the Old Testament. You read about this, sitting in a place that's dismal, broken down, and laid to waste, reminds us of our lives without God. And so these things were to be this physical depiction of the message they sought to convey to God. People take physical action to convey their heart to God. And they wanted, they wanted to respond. They were broken because of their sin. Everyone must call out earnestly, it says here, to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. You call out to God. You turn from your evil ways. You turn from the things that you're doing that are wrong. What is that word turn? It's repentance. To repent is to turn the other direction. It's a 180. It's not 360. That puts you on the same path. It's a 180. You may have noticed in that, in saying that, that the word repent, nor repentance has been used in the text. I don't have it in my version. I haven't seen in other versions. The word repent is not used in the text. Did the people repent? I'll say, yeah. People were family in the house with me. Yeah, people repented. How do we know that if the word's not used? Look at it. What they said and what they did proved that they repented. Look at this. The word repentance isn't in this passage, but repentance isn't a word. It's something you do. Repentance is not a word. It's something you do. And these people did repentance. Instead of saying it, they did it. Yeah, they cried out to God, but their repentance was action. One can have repentance without the word itself being spoken, and one can say the word repentance and never truly repent. You can say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that ever again. And how valid is your word if you don't do it? It's empty, it's void. But you can say nothing and change in your heart and change your life's direction. And no one will ever doubt that you repented because you didn't say the words the action makes evidence the situation of the heart. And let me say it another way. Sincerity is not found in words alone, but by words and actions in agreement. Sincerity is not found in words alone, but by words and actions in agreement. The words and actions of our lives must be congruent. They must be congruent. They have to agree with each other. Did they know if their repentance would change the proclamation of Jonah? Did they know if that was going to work? The message that we have here is 40 days, you're done. Now, there may have another thing said, but we're not giving that in the text, so we can't, we can't insert any of those things. This was the message. There's a powerful challenge in this verse for us. Are we willing to do the right thing, even if we're unsure of the outcome? Are we willing to obey even if we're unsure of where it's going to lead us? If your heart is responding in love towards God, not trying to earn his favor, but responding to that favor, you don't have to worry about the outcome. 
You don't have to worry about the outcome of your life if you are lovingly responding to the God who loves you faithfully. They say it right here. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. They're taking a gamble. Who knows? Now, there's a powerful challenge here, but let me, let me say this in response. It's far better to be in the hands of a gracious God than anywhere else. I don't expect that the Ninevites knew much of the Old Testament. I just don't expect that to be the case. And, and very much so, they wouldn't know what Jeremiah would write later, revealing the heart of God in this matter. That happened after this. But Jeremiah wrote this in Jeremiah 18, verses 7 through 8. He says this, and this is a great encouragement for us. At one moment, this is the Lord speaking, I might announce concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will uproot, tear down, and destroy it, just like here. However, this is Jeremiah 18, 8. This is a great verse. However, if that nation about which I have made the announcement turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the disaster I have planned to do to it. Americans, my fellow Americans, we need to preach this verse. We need to preach this verse. We have allowed so many children in our nation to die. We have allowed so many laws in our nation to be changed, to shift the morality of our nation away from in God we trust to in me we trust. If we will turn from our evil as a nation. If we as the faithful preachers of God's word are faithful to do so, God could still do something here. If there was hope for the Ninevites, there is hope for America. And if we are faithful to preach his word, he will relent concerning the disaster that he had planned to do it if this nation will turn. I fully believe that the church could still see a revival in this country. I fully believe that we could see our nation turn to the Lord again. And I think a lot of times we're trying to use bells and whistles to get God's work done. We're trying to use flash technology, um, the latest thing to get God's work done. Should we use the tools that are available to us? Yes. Should we rely on them? Never. Absolutely not. We have to rely on God's word and we have to be faithful to share it and show it. Not just say it, but live it. Pastors, if we're just preaching these things on Sunday morning and we're not living them the other six days, we are phonies. We're fakes, we're hypocrites, and we're part of the problem. We have to live these things out every single day. Christians, the same challenge for all of us who are believers. We cannot just say these things. We have to do them. We have to show this nation what repentance looks like. We have to show them what a powerful God truly can do. We have to be faithful to speak what he tells us to speak. God does not save us to give us a second chance at being good enough. God isn't reminding us this to give us another chance. His love for you has not changed. It's still on you. His favor is still on you. God is still smiling at us, church, because of Jesus. He saves us to reveal how graceful and merciful he is, to reveal his love for the human beings that he created. 
Think about the declaration of the Lord in Exodus chapter 34. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, full of steadfast love, abounding in forgiveness. God is reaching out to us, showing us that he's loving. And we're trying to prove to him that we're worth that love, that we're worthy of it. Jesus is the only reason we are worthy. To invite both Jew and Gentile into a loving relationship with them, if we are willing to humble ourselves and cry out to him, he will save us. He saved Jonah. He's saving the Ninevites. He can save people in our country. He can save our family members that we don't think have any hope. He can save our friends that we're heartbroken over. He can save all these people that we care about, but we feel like we can't reach. Be faithful to do what God gives you opportunity to do. And don't ever estimate that, that in your life, you are coming up short of what God says you have to bring to him. Give to him your love, your affection, your heart, and you will find that your body will follow. If we're willing to humble ourselves and cry out to him and turn from our wrongdoing and receive the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, he will save us. He will cleanse us of our sin because all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God is not looking for a way to keep people out of heaven. He has thrown open the gates. He has invited everyone in to be a part. Any who believe, anyone who will trust in Jesus can be a part of this. Because we don't enter through a gate that we have to have a key to. He's opened the gate and the way is called Jesus. The truth is called Jesus. The life is called Jesus. It's all through him. He is that way. And through Jesus, we come to the Father and be and to be in his presence. Where as the psalmist writes in Psalm 1611, you reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. All that you're seeking to satisfy you in this life is open through Christ to God. Jesus is your pathway to these things. God loves people. God wants to save people from their sin. He told Ezekiel in Ezekiel 33, 11, he's talking to his people and he says this, this is God's heart for humanity. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. Repent, repent of your evil ways. America, repent. God loves you. You're choosing death to turn away from him. You're choosing suffering to not serve him. Repent from this. God will save you. He has already proven his love for you. He doesn't want anyone to die. He doesn't want anyone to be separated from him. The Ninevites banked on the grace of God. They decided to put their lives in the hands of a God who was angry with their actions by returning and sitting and saying, we would rather be in your hands than continue in our ways. We'll take our chances. Smart move. Always bank on the grace of God. Always put yourself in his hands and let him decide. You take your chances out there alone, you die alone. You put yourself in the hands of a God who has proven himself to be gracious and merciful. You turn away from your sin. Never, never hesitate to place your life in the hands of a gracious and merciful God, a God who loves like this. Look at verse 10. God saw their actions that they had turned from their evil ways. He saw their repentance. He watched it. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. 
God saved them. Prophecies of doom are often conditional warnings that can be averted through repentance. Some people will look and go, God said he's going to destroy me. He didn't destroy him. God's a liar. No. A, prof- a prophecy of doom is oftentimes a conditional warning. That's why we have Jeremiah chapter 18 and various other verses that say, if you repent, I will save. If you turn from your evil ways, God warns them, you stay in this punishment. You don't, if you turn back, I'll save you. God loves people. God wants to save people from their sin, not to give us a second chance, but so that we might be born again. It's so crazy to me how we, and I put myself in this with, with everyone else. I'm, I'm not above anybody in thinking this way. How often we're looking for a second chance when we've been born again. If you've been born again, do you get born again and born again and born again and born again every time that you fail? No, you're born again. You're saved by grace. You're in Christ. Think about 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. See, the new has come. God's given us a newness of life. God's love for us does not hinge on our obedience. Our obedience proves our love for God. Do we understand that distinction? That God's love for us does not hinge on our obedience. Because God so loved the world, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin. And so our love for God reveals itself through obedience to him. Let's reveal our love to God by obeying him. Let's allow that natural response of loving affection for God come forth through obedience. Let's let our repentance be seen rather than talked about. And let's let our message be simple. Repent. Turn to the Lord. Not because you should, I mean, we should be fearful of God's wrath. But you understand God's wrath is coming on people that he loves because of sin. Repent of that sin. Place yourself in the hands of a God who is gracious and merciful. That's the lesson of the Ninevites. And we'll see how Jonah responds to this in chapter 4. And, and I've kind of done this on each of these, these messages that we've, we've shared together over the last few weeks. You know, kind of gave, gave that perspective. If Jonah had ended at chapter 1, you would assume Jonah was dead. If Jonah had ended at the end of chapter 2 you would assume that Jonah learned his lesson and the story was kind of about him. If the story ended at chapter 3, you would see this amazing happy ending with God saving the Ninevites. Jonah did his job. I mean, we are feeling really good right now about this whole Jonah thing. And then chapter 4 happens. And it's yet another reminder of this path that we walk with the Lord that being in a good place with God right now means we have to go through a daily walk, daily submitted to it. And that we still struggle with sin. Jonah is going to have a mighty, mighty struggle with sin. And so we'll talk about that next week as we conclude um, this study series. And I'm so thankful to be able to share just the things that God's been teaching me. Um, As is usual, God's breaking me down through all of this and building me back up. And so I just want to encourage you guys, let's worship and respond to the Lord in this time. And uh, and then we'll close our time together. Would you pray with me? 
Lord, we just ask as we worship that you would speak to our hearts. And I want to make my words few. Lord, we repent of our sin. Cleanse us. Refresh us. Remind us your love is not dependent on our performance. God, you are love.